Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, a podcast of the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On November 15, 2019, the Center hosted a conference titled Technology, Innovation, and Regulation. Needless to say, that's a pretty broad theme, and it provided for a wide array of interesting discussions of the ways in which regulation affects technological innovation and the ways in which technological innovation affects regulation. As always, the panel discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website, and the videos of the discussions are also on our website. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's opening panel titled, Should Social Media Be Regulated for Neutrality? This discussion centered around a new paper by Professor Adam Candube of Michigan State University. His paper is titled, Common Carriage and Section 230. He was joined in this discussion by three commenters. Anupam Chander, a professor of law at Georgetown. Lori Moylan, a public policy manager at Facebook. And Adam Thierer, senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. The discussion was moderated by Andrew Kloster, then the Deputy Director of the Gray Center. I hope you enjoy this very interesting discussion. Thank you all for coming. We're so pleased uh, today to have a, an excellent expert panel uh, to discuss uh, Professor Candube's uh, paper for us, which is available online, as Adam mentioned. It's Common Carriage in Section 230. Section 230 has been in the news much of late as the debate over uh, social media and tech regulation has hit a fever pitch almost. Uh, I will introduce each of our panelists uh, as they speak. So I'll begin with Professor Candube. Professor Candube is professor of law and director of intellectual of the of the intellectual property information and communications law program at Michigan State University College of Law. Uh, he before entering academics, he was a clerk on the Ninth Circuit. He was an associate at, at Jones Day uh, in the Washington office and was an attorney advisor at the FCC. So we're so pleased to have Professor Candube to give us uh, some discussion of his paper today. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Adam. Um, these events have really become, um, I think, among the most interesting and important um, centers for, for discussion in academia today, and I'm uh, just honored and, and grateful for the opportunity. Um, so the title today of the, of the panel was, um, Should Social Media Be Regulated for Neutrality? And uh, I don't want to be anything but gracious and grateful to my to my hosts, but I would suggest that that, that title is, is not quite fair. Um, I think that most of the concerns about social media, about the um, role they're playing in editing and controlling public discourse, is <clears throat> is not that uh, the concerns are, are, are not remedied by giving them the power or making government regulate, ha allow them to regulate, but rather the question is, can they discriminate? amongst users and how much. And um, I think the, the proper question is really, um, what sort of anti-discrimination prohibitions should be um, required of the social media platforms? So <clears throat> that goes to the bigger question of, well, you know, why should these firms have any discrimination requirement, anti-discrimination requirements at all? Um, after all, they're private entities. It's not their job. Um, it's their job to make money. It's not to advance any social goal. Um, but I think uh, given the role that they play in society today, um, given the fact that they have become essentially the public forum 
The question is, why are they any different from telephones or telegraphs or FedEx in that they have some basic requirements to serve anyone who follows their rules and um, wants to partake in the discussion? Um, and so the question, therefore, comes, well, what sort of requirements should they have? Um, should they be regulated to an extreme degree? Um, should they be like you know, the telephones of the 1940s and 50s? And of course, the answer is no, they shouldn't be that. Um, but what should they be? Um, and how can we sort of think about it? Well, I mean, one place to start is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um, and just by way of review, uh, Section 230 is sort of the basic liability regime for the internet. And it was part of the Communication Decency Act, Decency Act of 1996. And it's an incredible gift to the platforms. What it essentially says, as, as embroidered even further by <clears throat> court decisions, is that there's no liability whatsoever um, for statements or postings by third parties on platforms. So if I post something libelous onto Facebook, or I post even something criminal, depending state or federal, um, Facebook has absolutely no liability whatsoever. Now, that's a tremendous gift, um, because newspapers, for instance, um, you know, they're liable for everything in their, in the, 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 that they put in their, in their newspaper, whether it's in the letters to the editor section or not. Um, and the question is why? Why is there difference in liability? Well, <clears throat> when it was passed um, so many years ago, the idea was this was AOL and Prodigy, if anyone recalls that, you know, the dial-up. Um, as I tell my students, that was, we used dial-up internet just after we stopped with the cuneiform tablets. But um, <laughs> the, uh, they usually laugh a little bit more, but thank you, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> and it was, of course, a gift. It was a subsidy. It was a gift to the, the platforms because they wanted them to thrive without, the, the fear was that if they were liable for everything that people wrote on, um, uh, wrote down on these bulletin boards and chat rooms, then of course they'd go out of business and they'd, they'd wither and die. Um, it's important to note, however, that this was an extreme gift of liability. So as, as embroidered by, by judicial decisions, um, Platforms today, even if you go up to them and say, hey, Facebook, hey, Google, this is utterly defamatory and libelous or even threatening, they will say, oh, I'm so sorry, that's Section 230, we can do nothing. So, too bad. And that's an incredible gift. Um, now, have we seen this gift before, this exchange before? We have. We've seen them in telephones and telegraphs and FedEx. In all common carriage, that, that old bit of regulation that has long um, and still does. So, for instance, if you want a telephone from the telephone company, an old-fashioned wireline phone, and you are a Satanist or you're a communist or you're a you know, member of the alt-right, the telephone company can't deny you that telephone. Um, they have an under-obligation to serve anyone who comes. It's, and, and they continue to this day and have that obligation. Um, the question is, and, and the, the reason was, was quite clear, it's a deal, um, because these networks have um, tremendous reach, because um, they exercise market power, the state said, okay, we'll let you continue to have this market power, that state, but in return, you have some non-discrimination requirements. And that's pretty much what I think we're looking for on 
social media. Um, social media has become the public forum. It's the certain as as uh, when Zuckerberg was asked who was your competitors um, by um, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, he really couldn't answer uh, because they don't really have one. Um, and so the question is, are we going to um, continue to give this tremendous gift of Section 230 with nothing in return? Is there to be no public interest that's to be um, uh, furthered uh, and simply just a giveaway to the social media companies? Uh, my answer is no. Uh, I think that um, if they're going to continue under this, this liability regime, which is very generous, they have some public um, interest that they have to further, just like the telephone companies, just like the old telegraph companies, just like FedEx. Um, and I think it, a simple anti-discrimination requirement um, is really kind of the answer. Uh, you know, we talk about polarization in our society, how no one talks to anybody. And the question is, well, okay, why don't we have this platform, electronic platform where anyone can go and, and talk to each other and, and, and treat each other as equals, as, as, as members of the polity. Um, yeah, we could call it Facebook or Twitter. Great idea. Okay, but now we find that in fact, they often have agenda-driven decisions and many people feel excluded from those platforms. Um, I think in a democratic society, we have an obligation to everybody, and I'm under time. Thank you, Adam. <coughs> so going down in order then, our next speaker is uh, Adam Thier. He's a senior research fellow here at the Mercatus Center, uh, housed here at the law school at George Mason University. Um, he specializes in innovation, entrepreneurialism, internet, and free speech issues with a particular focus on public policy concerns surrounding uh, emerging technologies. His latest book is Permissionless Innovation, the Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. So please, Adam. Well, thank you, Andrew, and uh, thanks to uh, Adam White and everyone at the GMU Law School for uh, having me here today to comment on Adam's paper. I want to say, first of all, the, the morning's off to a good start. We have the proper quota of people named Adam beginning the day. Three is a good number, uh, so that's good. Um, I'm going to offer some general thoughts about uh, Adam's paper and about common carriage and neutrality mandates more generally as applied to new search social media and digital platforms. Um, this is something I've spent a lot of my time over the last 30 years writing about and being skeptical of the idea of extending common carriage or neutrality-like mandates to new uh, platforms, um, because we should be careful about this. Uh, common carriage is a form of regulation, and historically speaking, it's, it's unclear whether common carriage really served us as well as some proponents have suggested. We should at least be skeptical about the wisdom of applying it too quickly or too broadly to new sectors and fast-moving technologies where it may not be appropriate. Now, common carriage certainly has some benefits for the public, and it People like to talk about it as a deal and uh, or a bargain uh, and a public good. Um, and, you know, it gave the public, in many cases, service to an undifferentiated service uh, or good on a non-discriminatory basis on just and reasonable terms. The downside of providing something, the provision of something as a sort of plain vanilla service on those terms um, begins with the fact that the public ends up being denied to, denied uh, many other types of flavors of service. Um, public utilities and common carriers are, by their very nature, very non-innovative, um, without any incentive to earn a greater return. Um, innovation suffers. Common carriers often get the better end of these deals, and the public good becomes really the private good as we convert them into monopolies with restrictions on new entry and guaranteed markets and rates. 
Uh, and again, without an, uh, any need to innovate to survive, uh, they end up just making regulators happy instead of the public happy. Unsurprisingly, therefore, the history of common carriage in all too many sectors is one that features chronic public choice problems and cronyism galore. You need no, do nothing more than read Alfred Kahn's uh, historic uh, work on this front, The Economics of Regulation, his two-volume masterwork before he became chairman of the Civil Aeronautics Board, put it all in action and abolished that agency uh, and everything along with it because of those sorts of problems. Now, one thing that surprised me in Adam's paper is that he alludes to the fact that we can look to the past to maybe get an idea for what we can do about the future of regulating social media and search by looking at other common carriage deals, including such things as the AT&T Kingsbury commitment uh, that gave us the Bell Monopoly system. Um, and this is really shocking to me. The, the very first journal article I ever wrote in my life uh, in 1994 was called Unnatural Monopoly, A Brief History of the Bell System Monopolization. And uh, it's, it's a sordid tale. It's not a good one. Um, uh, Adam suggests in his paper that this uh, was a deal that gave us a public good, namely uh, access to uh, a unified, interconnected communications network. And indeed it did. But it came at a great cost. It was, this deal was a competition and an innovation killer for the better part of the entire last century. The public got a raw deal out of the Kingsbury commitment. We got stuck with a monopoly that limited innovation for many, many decades. Sadly, that was all by design. It was by the design of the head of AT&T, Theodore Vail, and by uh, the public officials who helped oversee it. Um, don't trust me on this. Here are just a few industry historians. Richard Veter says uh, Theodore Vail at the time chose to put AT&T squarely behind government regulation as a quid pro quo for avoiding competition. Robert Garnett says after years of unfettered competition during which AT&T's financial strength had been sapped and efforts to build an integrated system had been dangerously undermined, regulation became a, quote, much preferred alternative. And Gerald Brock said, regulation increased the difficulty of new entry. By accepting regulation voluntarily, the uh, AT&T reduced the risk that unfavorable regulation would be imposed. So this is not the model, needless to say, we should be utilizing for regulating uh, digital sectors. We should be very, very careful about applying it more broadly. Now, I'm sure uh, my other panelists and colleagues here will uh, talk about more about the special problems with applying uh, common carriage or neutrality-like mandates more broadly uh, to search and social media platforms in particular. I'll just briefly mention a few, uh, starting with the fact that social media is not anything like the traditional common carriers we traditionally apply these rules to, um, whether we're talking about water, electricity, sewage systems, rail, whatever else. Again, very undifferentiated, fairly static, unchanging services. Social media is completely different. It's something that's far more fast moving, rapidly evolving, one has to ask ourselves, would we have been well served by applying common carriage mandates 20 years ago when people like Larry Lessig and others were talking about AOL Time Warner being something we should be in fear of and maybe needed to regulate in this way? Or how about 15 years ago when people were suggesting that MySpace already had a monopoly on social media services? Would we have, should, should we have imposed common carriage or neutrality mandates then? I would hope the answer would be no. Um, we also need to realize that social media involves the movement, creation and movement of speech. There are important First Amendment values in play here, things that I think we have to take very seriously. I'm sure we'll talk more about the challenges of defining discrimination in this context, at least with regards to water, sewage, rail, electricity. Discrimination is a more binary thing. You either sort of have it or you don't, or the rate is too high or it isn't. And I went through those rate of return proceedings and all of the hearings in the old days of public utility commissions. 
But basically, this is far, far more complicated when we're talking about who and what type of speech gets access to what types of platforms. That's a harder thing to figure out. It's especially hard to figure out when you have so many different players who are advocating opposite things as it pertains to discrimination neutrality. Ask yourself this, how in the world are we to make both Senators Josh Hawley and Senator Elizabeth Warren happy? I don't know because to give one of them what they want is to completely deny the other what they think is needed. And therefore you leave it to some other bureaucracy or set of regulators, I guess at the FCC or FTC, it's another thing to consider who's imposing these rules, to try to figure all of this out through a political process. I think that's a horrible way to govern speech platforms in this country. I think it's particularly bad because we have a history of agencies trying to do this in other contexts. The FCC did try to do this with regards to other systems. And when you get into the history of things like the Fairness Doctrine and other types of efforts, must carry regulation, so on and so forth, you see again a really troubling history of politically meddle, political meddling and a lot of sort of like public choice problems creep into these efforts to define what is in the public good. Um, so I'll just wrap up by saying a few other things um, about Adam's paper. I, I think we, we really could think about maybe an alternative set of solutions. I don't want to say there's no problems here. I mean, there's some real problems with how search and social media providers provide access to services, determine what kind of content stays up, goes down, or who gets to ride on the platform. There is no doubt that all roads lead back to some sort of an effort to first and foremost inject more competition into this, into this world. There's no doubt about it. Competition is always and everywhere the preferable answer over things like common carriage and other types of regulation. We shouldn't have, and we didn't stop when AOL Time Warner ruled the world or MySpace, we moved on. And I still have hope that we can and find other alternative platforms and solutions. Um, I'm also a big believer in the idea that so-called soft law as solutions, informal types of governance arrangements can be a big part of this. There's already numerous efforts underway to try to ensure more accountability, transparency, and so on and so forth as it relates to things like content moderation, deplatforming, and so on. There is no Goldilocks principle here. There is no getting it just right. It is really an ongoing iterative process of trying to figure out sensible policies when we don't have a community standard of, for one single system. We have many, many community standards. We have many public interests, not just one. And so that's an iterative process that's going to be ongoing and messy, but ultimately can be accomplished with things like multi-stakeholder processes, guidelines, best practices, other types of checks by other types of groups, organizations, working groups, and so on. Finally, and this may be shocking for some of you to hear coming out of my mouth, if all else fails, I am not opposed to the idea of government creating its own social networking platforms. I know that sounds crazy. I know a lot of you probably laugh and say it'll never work. It could be a tremendous flop and a huge waste of taxpayer dollars. But at the end of the day, we already have systems like this, right? We have a post office. <laughs> we have other types of municipally provided services. There could be a very compelling case to be made, and people on the left have been making it for years, and I have not shot away from endorsing it, that maybe the government could provide the equivalent of a carrier of last resort type of platforms for digital social media. Again, I know it could be a, a silly waste of money. And yes, all of the same problems I just identified will creep up there. They do every day with other publicly provided goods and services. But it could be the backstop and a better one than all this meddling with private platforms and private speech that we're talking about when we're talking about net neutrality or common carriage for social media platforms. 
So with that, I'm going to wrap up and just say, generally speaking, when in doubt, we should err on the side of more free speech, more innovation, and more competition. But in my opinion, expanding common carriage obligations won't give us any of those things. In fact, it might just give us less of all of them. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. Our next commentator is Lori Moreland. Uh, she is the public policy manager uh, on the external affairs team at Facebook and uh, where she manages relationships with think tanks, advocacy organizations, and other groups interested in Facebook's public policy issues. Um, welcome back to the Arlington campus of George Mason University. Uh, Lori was previously at the Mercatus Center here, and she also worked at R Street and at the American Enterprise Institute. Lori, please. Thank you. Um, so as the non-lawyer on the panel, I'm here more to provide a little bit of color about how we see these issues at Facebook. Um, and hopefully help you understand how we try to solve some of these problems today and what we actually see playing out on the platform. So I'll start by um, by just reinforcing a few of the points that, that Adam made in his, um, second Adam made in his presentation, um, which is that when you start talking about neutrality in social media, it becomes incredibly difficult to define really quickly. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of things that we've seen just in the last year that I think highlight the difficulty there. So if you look at our, um, our decision earlier this year to take Alex Jones off the platform, many people thought that was incredibly discriminatory. And we heard a lot from people on the right that that was the wrong decision. But we've also recently reaffirmed our decision to not fact check political speech from um, politicians. And people on the left feel that that's incredibly discriminatory because it allows lies and other, um, other mistruths um, to be proliferated throughout the platform in ways that they feel can harm their communities. And if you were to ask, as, as Adam pointed out, any individual congressman, senator, or presidential candidate what the right solution to that is, I think we would get incredibly, incredibly different things. And so when it's really hard to define something like that, we have to think about like what is our responsibility as a platform to our users so that we can make sure that they're having the experience, frankly, that Adam, I think, wants them to have, as, as he says in his paper, right, where they don't feel discriminated against, they feel that there's transparency in the decision making, and they feel like they sort of know the service that they're going to get when they come onto the platform. Um, because the point is when you even discuss sort of like a mild non-discrimination clause, that can mean something incredibly, incredibly different. Um, you know, one of the things that Adam pointed out in his paper that we haven't really discussed here so far is that if we're talking about limiting the, the liability protections that Section 230 provides us, the argument is frequently made that we live in a, a much, much more mature internet today and that AI could help us solve a lot of the problems so that we can, you know, moderate content more effectively and take down the things that we've all agreed upon in this neutrality framework to be dangerous. Um, I will certainly say that that's our goal, um, but I would hesitate to use that as a statement of that's where we are today. Um, we do use our AI tools to try to moderate things that we've said can't be on the platform, things like terrorist content where we can hash and match videos that have been uploaded as terrorist propaganda. That's a, a, a much easier place to use it, nudity, where it's like a little bit easier for the computer to tell what nudity is. Um, but when it comes to things like hate speech or bullying or harassment, so much of that, the devil is in the details and the context of the post is actually what matters. And even when it's sent to a human for review, we can 
make mistakes. And so to say that we should lose our Section 230 protections pursuant to, because we should be using our AI to solve this more effectively, it's just not a world that we're in yet. Um, we are constantly working to improve our AI tools. If you're interested, we put out a new transparency report earlier this week that gives updates on how we're using both human moderation and AI moderation so that we can effectively moderate the platform better. Um, but it does show what the limitations are. Um, and I do want to double down as well on the point that that Adam made um, that we definitely think that more competition is always the answer. And I want to politely push back on the idea that we don't have any competitors. You know, right now is um, someone who used to work at the Mercatus Center and all of these um, other great think tanks. I think that it is wonderful that we live in an environment where you can have competing standards around what content moderation should look like as we all try to figure out the rules for our various platforms. Um, we feel like we face heavy competition for all of our services, whether it's our messaging services where we compete with every other type of messaging service in the world. Um, we compete with SMS, we compete with iMessage, we compete with email, we compete with Snapchat. Um, on social media itself, we compete with Twitter, we definitely compete with TikTok. Um, the, um, the threats are always growing and it's why we spend so much time on innovating, on trying to create an experience that our users will want. Um, but the, the threat of competition is incredibly real and I do think helps solve a lot of the problems in this space. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about how we think about these issues um, when it comes to moderating content and what we've done to, I think, try to address the problems that are laid out in this paper. Um, so we have a set of community standards. Those community standards are public. You can go online, you can find them. It is the basis for what all of our um, human reviewers use to decide whether a particular post is violating or not. Um, and actually we, so as you can imagine, we have to adjust these standards constantly as the platform evolves and we see new problems as language evolves, as we realize that we're having unintended consequences in a way that maybe a particular policy is being adjudicated. So we have a very large team that's dedicated to making sure that we're getting this right globally, but we don't want to just do that in the dark. So we have um, bi-weekly meetings where we discuss what the upcoming potential changes are to the community standards. We make the notes of those meetings public. <clears throat> Whenever something has been decided, you can go back and you can look at the notes and see how Facebook as a platform got to the decision point that it got to about where that community standard should live now. We receive a lot of feedback from outside stakeholders, as you can imagine, and we do our best. We have, again, another incredibly large team who's dedicated to bringing in people from around the world to come in and advise on how a particular policy change might have unintended consequences for their community so that we can be sure that we're arising at the best, arriving at the best place for our users. Um, so that leaves us with something where we now have billions of posts that are supposedly being and are trying to be adjudicated along a set of rules. But the answer is at the end of the day, we still aren't always going to get it right. You know, in late 2018, Mark released a, a public letter about content moderation and talked about how Facebook wants to evolve as a platform um, in its content moderation practices. And he admitted in that um, in that note that sometimes we think we that our error rate at our first adjudication of these uh, of an individual post might be as high as 10%. And the answer to why that happens is again because it's hard. We've hired 30,000 new people to help us focus on safety and content review, but that doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, I think 
we have at the end of the day, we have humans who are looking at these posts who, for privacy concerns, are only looking at that individual post and the text of that individual post, not necessarily the larger context of someone's page or a series of posts. And they're having to make a decision about what that means. And again, context can be key. But so because we recognize that we might get it wrong in so many cases, we've launched an appeals process where if you feel that we made the wrong decision on your content or you feel that we've made the wrong decision on content that you reported, you can appeal upward and a different reviewer will look at that decision. We try to hold our reviewers to incredibly high standards, doing weekly overviews where we have sort of a, you know, higher level employees that are more sort of source of truth, right, who compare what they think the standard means on a particular post versus what a frontline reviewer did so that we can make sure that we're constantly training them to make the right decision versus our policies. Um, and so, you know, we're committed to providing the, the transparency and committed to trying to provide the due process in the best way that we possibly can. But right now it is still hard because we're talking about billions of posts, billions of hours that are, are spent on the platform every day, which is why we're also dedicated to making the AI, AI tools better. Um, but this is a thing that has never been tried before and we're, you know, constantly trying to improve and iterate. Um, I will say to, to Adam's last point that we do think that there are other solutions to this than just you know the, the sort of growing feeling that Facebook is discriminating against everyone, whether it's conservatives or Black Lives Matter. That's obviously a charge that we take incredibly seriously. So we've talked about standing up um, our own independent oversight board where you can appeal a decision all the way up to um, a board that is separate and external from Facebook that will be comprised of 43 expression advocates from around the globe who will be able to look at a particular post with, um, with fresh eyes, compare it against our standards, and who will have binding authority over whether or not the, um, over a decision that they make as to whether or not that post should have stayed up or should have come down. Um, in addition to efforts that we can do on our own, like creating this independent oversight board, we have endorsed, at least here in the United States, the idea of some sort of industry standard body, a multi-stakeholder process where um, our counterparts in industry can come together with us to say, what are common definitions for these things? What is manipulated media? What is a deep fake? These are actually very hard questions to figure out in a way that can create certainty for our users. So could we come together as an industry and help define some of the more difficult problems? Yes, we think we could, right? And then you could imagine this playing out and obviously our goal would be to have it play out in a way that still encourages competition amongst content moderation systems. So the idea would be much more, do you have a process in place? What are common definitions for these? And do you as a platform sort of affirmatively state to your users, you know, you could imagine Facebook wanting to be um, maybe the PG level platform where you identify this type of content should only exist on an, an X rated platform, this one on an R rated platform, this one on a PG 13. We would probably be, we have 13 year olds on the platform. We're probably your PG family friendly platform where a lot more things are, are going to come down for our user base. Twitter might make a very different decision. Um, I think Gab would make a very different decision. Reddit would make a different decision. Um, but do you have common definitions so that users can know when they go to a particular platform so that parents, when they're making a decision for what platform their children should be on, can have a sense of what particular experience you're going to get based on where you decide to sign up? 
Um, and so I'll stop there. Um, I'm happy to explore other ideas and solutions. But I will say, um, in conclusion, you know, I think at the end of the day, what I liked about Adam's paper is that I do think our goal is the same. Um, the question is just how you get there and how you do it in a way that doesn't limit speech, which I think is incredibly important for us to, to think about. All right. <clears throat> Thank you very much. So Lori noted that Facebook takes seriously the charge of non-neutrality, but our next commentator may think that they shouldn't take that charge so seriously. Um, uh, his article, The Myth of Platform Neutrality, was very helpful. I enjoyed it. So that's, uh, you can find that out there. Um, our, it's Professor Anupan uh, Chander. He's a professor of law at the Georgetown, uh, at Georgetown. Um, he was a clerk on the Ninth and Second Circuit, a member of the American Law Institute. Um, and without further ado, uh, Professor. One moment. Hi. Um, thanks very much. Um, first of all, thanks, Adam, for a terrific paper. Uh, it's uh, full of wonderful insights and great history. Um, and um, I do share a common uh, uh, agreement here um, that law does provide an implicit sub subsidy to Internet enterprise. Um, and so what he takes from that is that we need to strike a new bargain, the bargain that we gave this away to internet industry before, and now we need to ask for something in return. And what he would ask for them uh, to do is to promise both non-discrimination, by which he means when someone wants to post something, when, once, when someone wants to say something, you can't discriminate on the basis of the content or the speaker uh, at, when, they, when they make that uh, claim. Um, and he also suggests that we should also impose greater liability in case they mess up in a particular way. Okay, uh, so those are the, the important claims that Adam is making. Um, as I said, I agree that law does, uh, does uh, in fact, uh, provide an implicit subsidy. I, I've argued this in a paper, um, and uh, you know I think this is actually one of the signal reasons that the United States uh, conquered the internet. Uh, that uh, uh, essentially our law turned out to be far more hospitable than foreign law to internet enterprise. So uh, 230 was one of the key uh, cornerstones of internet enterprises we have today. Uh, now. Then the question of uh, how uh, the new bargain that Adam would prefer, Professor can do, but I should make sure not to use the word Adam here, <laughs> given the three Adams of the panel, um, Professor Kandub would, uh, would prefer uh, a norm of non-discrimination or a law of non-discrimination an obligation on these uh, on such social media enterprises. But it's not clear to me um, why this is the problem he is uh, addressing. Uh, so uh, we've seen President Trump uh, proclaim this, that, you know, he's being, uh, you know, his side is unfairly treated in this, in this medium. But of course, uh, President Trump has 66.8 million followers uh, some of whom might be bots, certainly, uh, but, uh, but uh, he is the second most followed politician in the world today. Uh, and so, uh, by the way, the first, uh, it might not make him happy to hear, is, of course, Barack Obama, uh, currently not a politician, 
but still uh, a former politician. Um, and uh, so, so it's not entirely clear to me that this is such a grave problem. Uh, now, I understand from Professor Kandu that he's also working with Devin Nunes. And, and uh, so there's the, some complaint that Devin Nunes ha has made against Twitter. He, uh, uh, Devin Nunes is now has filed a, uh, uh, a claim for a quarter billion dollars against Twitter, uh, saying they have damaged his reputation by allowing Twitter to, in fact, carry uh, stuff that he doesn't want them to carry. So there's the kind of, uh, so we'll, uh, we can discuss this. Uh, uh, I see Adam is, uh, is uh, unhappy with my characterization here. Uh, okay. Uh, so there, so let me just run through a number of different uh, kind of uh, concerns that I have in this space. Um, the, first of all, if indeed uh, we want to strike a new bargain, why is non-discrimination the bargain that we should seek? Um, it seems to me that there's you have an open-ended uh, array of possible approaches. We might want other things. Uh, for example, we might ask for, hey, let's try to get more people online. Let's get pe more people tools to participate, right? Uh, so more broadband access, more maybe perhaps now in the 5G space, making sure 5G gets out to people, uh, et cetera. Maybe we want to make sure that all schools are wired, uh, et cetera. So there's other deals that we might strike. It's not clear to me that, quote, non-discrimination is the deal that we should strike. Second, um, here, the subsidy, which, I, as I said, I agree with Professor Kandub, uh, it is a subsidy, um, doesn't actually, um, it's, it's a subsidy that is also in our interest. Um, that is, we all get the ability to speak back to the world. I tweeted this morning on this panel. That's what I was doing uh, on my phone. Uh, and that is the power that I have. I could have, if, if I were in the audience, you could tweet now what a, what a dumb remark Professor Chandra made uh, this morning. Uh, and so you can speak back to me directly. Uh, and even though I occupy this podium, you have other uh, avenues that the internet has made available. And in fact, the platforms have made available in this context. Um, so third, the, the paper seems focused very much on Facebook and perhaps to a lesser extent, Twitter. Um, and it's not clear to me that that's the full gamut of, uh, of options here. Um, uh, Lori uh, helpfully pointed out the array of other competitors that they actually feel is quite serious, uh, including, for example, TikTok, uh, which is, uh, has reached, uh, I think, near a billion users faster than mm -hmm. any other uh, social media enterprise in history, uh, faster than Facebook, faster than Google, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so, uh, so it's uh, it's uh, it may not be a billion quite, uh, but uh, it's uh, you know closing in on billion, if not exactly a billion at this point. Uh, so, and the array of platforms here is often unexpected. Pinterest, uh, Discord, which is a gaming chat. Uh, anyone here? The young people who use game, uh, Discord at all? No one wants to admit it. Uh, okay, so I know my uh, my fourteen year old. So there's one person here who who confesses to use Discord. My fourteen year old uses Discord, um, and uh, League of Legends 
is a is a huge communications uh, channel. If you choose to treat it as such, as we saw recently uh, with respect to uh, kind of uh, concerns about uh, censorship from China, uh, to Gab, which is a kind of uh, we welcome uh, hate speech, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, as a welcome app for hate speech, as opposed to uh, the uh, the opposite from uh, from Facebook. Uh, so. And even if we borrowed the non-discrimination obligation from common carriers, you know, I might note that if we, if you look at FedEx, which perhaps may or may not, you know, seems to have some aspects of common carrier, maybe, maybe not others. Uh, uh, so even FedEx bans pornography outright. So non-discrimination might, it's not exactly clear to me what it, it really entails. And here's the oddity of this. It's, it turns out that non-discrimination here is actually in this in the service of real discrimination. That is uh, the use. So, barring of uh, of uh, 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 Mr. Jones on on the internet was really because of his discriminatory views towards groups of people. Uh, that was the that was the reason that uh, he has been uh, barred from these sites uh, and welcomed onto Gab, etc. Uh, and demonetized on YouTube, et cetera. Uh, and so th here's a non-discrimination obligation that actually uh, works in favor of, uh, so that would in fact work in favor of actual discrimination. Finally, and this is the point that uh, both uh, Adam Thierer and Lori uh, Moylan have been making uh, this morning, that much of what Professor Kandub's uh, proposal would do would actually be to suppress speech. So this is not, so I see the, the kind of unintended consequences of his approach as, uh, as suppressing speech. So first of all, more hate speech drives others away. Okay, this is why uh, Facebook wants to clear its platform of such speech. It welcomes, it wants to make sure that the, uh, the many users who don't want this stuff uh, are, are, feel welcome on, their, on this platform. Um, finally, increased liability will incentivize the suppression of controversial speech. So anytime something is controversial, uh, Facebook will now, if, if it fears liability, shut it down, right? Uh, any particular post is of almost zero marginal value to Facebook. Um, all those controversial posts will then be uh, uh, shuttered in because of uh, the lawyers telling Facebook that this is a bad idea. Um, now, I wanted to focus a little bit on the case of Zarin v. AOL, on which uh, Professor Kendoub spends much time in the paper. Um, so this is a, 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 a very important moment in the history uh, in the in, embroidery, as Adam so nicely described it this morning, of, uh, of the case law around 2.30. Uh, and uh, so uh, he says that Zarin v. AOL adopted an extreme position by not deleting a false posting and thereby should have been held liable. What was the false posting here? Uh, the false posting was uh, Ken Zaran sold T-shirts that made fun of the Oklahoma bombing. That was the post that was put on Facebook. Zaran uh, calls up Facebook. Facebook takes it down. Someone posts it again and again and again. Okay. Zaran sues 
uh, it, not Facebook, AOL, I apologize. <laughs> Sorry, Laurie. Uh, so, uh, so uh, uh, which, as Adam Thierer points out, was the Facebook of its day, uh, uh, unlikely to uh, see its reign uh, terminated by any future uh, uh, company because of the network effects that, face, that AOL itself had. Um, so, the, so the, in that case, even though the district court describes the case as, uh, uh, you know, with adopting uh, Kenneth Zaron's statement of facts, the case is entirely decided on summary judgment. So there is no fact finding by the court. Okay, so it's presumed that the facts are as they as they say as uh, uh, Mr. Zaron says they are. So actually, there's no no judicial determination of the truth or falsity of the claim that he did not post or did post uh, uh, T-shirts that made fun of uh, Oklahoma, uh, the Oklahoma bombing. I don't think any scholar has actually investigated that question. Right. So now the question is. Does AOL have an obligation to investigate that question? And the answer, of course, is even if it has that obligation, what will it do? It will not actually undertake to determine whether or not he, he actually sold T-shirts that had this, uh, this uh, horrible stuff. It will just remove the material. Okay. So the reality is that any kind of liability regime that adopts the distributor liability model here will inevitably lead to a great deal of, uh, of automatic censorship. It won't be uh, automatic in the sense of AI censorship, but by lawyers saying, shut it down, because we're not going to, despite our 100,000 or 30,000 employees working in uh, content moderation, uh, we can't investigate this particular claim, right? Um, and what does this say about uh, the question of truth or falsity. We've just seen Facebook again refuse to, to arbitrate truth or falsity uh, in this case, this uh, Biden corruption ad. Um, this is actually a very difficult case to arbitrate. What is the truth or falsity of this ad? Um, so many uh, commentators have said it's obviously false, but others may say, hey, this is actually more of a kind of opinion piece with some, uh, some facts thrown in, construed in a particular way that, that works for the narrative that the, the president prefers. So the truth or falsity here is very, uh, very difficult. And so could Joe Biden or Hunter Biden bring a claim for dist under distributor liability model against Facebook, et cetera, for hosting this material in the future? This ad is visible today on YouTube, just so you know. So it took me a long time to get to it, to find the actual ad, by the way. Uh, so uh, because everything is about the complaints about this ad, not the actual ad. Um, I'll skip this uh, for uh, for purposes of this, but there has been a recent case where Justice Brav uh, Brett Kavanaugh uh, takes a strong view against converting private actors into state actors. Uh, it's not the exact same move that that Professor Kanduba is doing, but there's something similar here. Um, and finally, when I think of neutral platforms, I think this is what we should be thinking of. Uh, we should be thinking of uh, 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 shoes that are neutral, and we shouldn't expect our platforms themselves to be neutral, despite the fact that um, Facebook would prefer you to think that they're all neutral, et cetera. I think discrimination, non-discrimination applications don't make sense in this space. Thank you. Uh, 
All right, thank you, Professor. So we have uh, a lot of time for questions and commentary. So first, though, I would like uh, to let Professor Kandub, if he has any comments on anything else that was said, and then after that, if anyone else has any follow-on comments first. Well, thank you, everybody, um, for those very helpful and interesting comments. Um, just to make clear, um, to the degree that you're critical of my paper, you're all wrong. Let's establish <laughs> that first. Um, but let's go Siri Adam. Okay, Siri Adam. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so first, um, Adam Thier, um, you know, accuses me of, of essentially, you know, dear yeast, I want to impose common carriage on the world. Um, I, I think that's not true at all. Um, what we look at is all I'm advocating is sort of a mild anti-discrimination requirement um, that has nothing to do with the you know centuries of, of rather oppressive uh, common carriage um, common carriage um, obligations, and I, I don't think we should be saddled with that by simply suggesting um, a type of uh, regulation that you know. Everybody deals with um, schools, employers. We all have anti-discrimination requirements, and somehow we manage to keep on going. Even telephone companies, who complain about all of their regulation all the time, are still functioning under it. And yet, you know, the, the innovation that that um, Adam um, decries as being destroyed seems to not be diminished at all. Um, so that, um, and I think the stronger point is, you know, at some level we have to take a step back and say, oh, simply because you're using a word, common carriage, which refers to a whole variety of, of regulations, um, you know, you're against innovation or it will destroy um, corporations. Um, you have to be a little bit more specific and explain exactly how this regulation will actually be hurtful. Um, I don't think it's enough to just hand wave. Um, and I think that goes to the, the, the bigger response to Adam's point, which is unmentioned, is the liability break. I mean, why is it that we essentially corporatism um, without a public good? Um, you can't argue um, for a free market and at the same time argue for the current version of Section 230. Um, I think a bigger part, getting back to, 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 to Lori, Lori's and, and Adam's points, which I think overlap a little bit. So. You know, what's worse than government meddling and government censorship? Well, I know something that's worse than that. Private censorship by a, by a private monopolist. Um, I think that's just as bad, if not worse. Why? Two reasons. One, because if, if someone, if a private monopolist is sitting on public discourse, you have their personal preferences driving a large amount of what's going on in our country. I think that's a bad thing. Um, whether or not you think that they have some sort of libertarian natural right to do that, I think that's bad. But there's a more subtle reason that it's bad, and it has to do with the weakest link. All the, the discussion all assumes that, oh, you know, Facebook or Twitter will be free to make these, you know, these wise decisions based upon their, you know, Supreme Courts, and they won't. Um, various stakeholder meetings and things like that. Um, but they are the weakest link when you talk about government censorship. Um, and, and what I mean by that is we all think that free markets create independent thinking by corporations. I think that's not true. I think the natural state is corporatism. There is an alliance between large monopolists and government, and government will be able to step on the weakest link, and they will be able to negotiate with the weakest link for their often anti potentially anti-democratic preferences. Now, I know that sounds a little bit paranoid, um, but we've seen examples of that. Um, you think about after 9-11, um, 
what happened with with monitoring um, of of phone conversations, which Congress had to pass a, um, if you recall this, had to pass a a um, uh, a law um, essentially limiting the liability of AT and T. So yes, there's going to be this cooperation. The question is, how does one prevent that, or how does one remedy that? One of the nice things about anti-discrimination requirements is that when a government comes to a large corporation or, or very quietly the sub rows away and says, oh, go after these guys, at least the, the um, corporations say, nope, that's illegal. We can't do that. So in many ways, when you have concentrated markets where you have um, um, monopolists who can exert huge influence on public discourse, they need these anti-discrimination requirements to stand up to government, which will inevitably influence and control people. And if you don't think that happens, I think you're absurdly naive. Okay. Um, uh, um, and I think that that, that, that to some degree um, uh, goes to um, Lori's point. I mean, I think we all appreciate um, corporate efforts to uh, be more fair and to be um, transparent. But we also have to realize, and again, it, it, nothing personal, but uh, these these are corporations that have one purpose, which is to deliver eyeballs to their advertisers. Um, and uh, if that is consistent with um, uh, uh, free speech or free expression, fine. But if it's not, then you know, what's going to go first, um, corporate profits or free speech? Um, and we have to recognize that you know, these, um, these procedures aren't really motivated by a desire for um, uh, an open forum and, and, and for the marketplace of ideas. Um, then I, I just, I'm just for the sake of, I think perhaps everyone would like to hear other people talk. Um, uh, getting back to the notion of um, how these anti-discrimination requirements might create less speech because people will be afraid of, um, uh, afraid of speaking because of hate speech. I, I mean, I, I imagine I may be correct on this, but you know, Social media is a, net, is a network of private networks. Um, if you don't want to talk to anybody, you can block them. Um, I, I, you know, and I think that's the ideal situation. We, it, 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 we have a control of who you want to talk to. I use Facebook very limitedly. I only talk about neighbors, about you know things like you know PTA issues. I never have any problems with anyone saying anything controversial because my network is 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 described. I control it. That's really what we want. Um, the idea uh, that idea is patently false because you know right now with this telephone, you know um, a racist or a a Black Lives Matter radical could call me up at any time and would talk to me. It's like hi, I want to talk about you know terrorism, um, but that isn't. I don't live in fear of my telephone that someone might call me up. It's like, oh, I want to talk about racism. Ah! N nobody does that. Um, and I don't think similarly anybody really is in fear of talking on social media because they'll hear views that they don't like. Um, last little bit um, about, and this is more of a lawyer's point, and then I will shut up, um, about the issues of, of, of liability in Zoran. I accept the correction from um, uh, Professor Chander, and I will, I will, before it goes to publication, I will, I will make sure that point is clear in Zoran that it wasn't established. Um, but what we find, and, and I, would, I would point to the Hassel v. Byrd case, which was a recent Supreme Court case out of California, where, in fact, it was adjudicated that 
um, I, I guess it was Yelp was was publishing false thing. I, I, let me get that straight. I have to. I can't remember. It was yeah. Was what was false? A court did, and the court had a, a order saying Yelp take it down. And the Supreme Court of California said, "Oh, so sorry. Section two thirty gives us immunity." So we are now in situations in which it's not where it, it, it's just. 230 is extended and bloated to such a degree that it's not about asking carriers to um, adjudge things false or, 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 or true. It's essentially allowing um, uh, social media to you know, essentially give the finger to courts um, when trying to take down illegal media. So I will. Okay, so um, I got a number of comments on, the, on those other comments. Um, so Professor Kandoop saying a number of things here that I find a bit confusing and somewhat contradictory. We hear uh, a lot of talk about corporatism and corporate uh, alliances between private companies and government. Um, <clears throat> and he says that what's worse than public meddling and regulation is, quote, private censorship by a monopoly, uh, which I completely disagree with. I think it is more concerning about what the government would do to limit speech, because we are talking about speech here, relative to what private corporations decide. But by the end of his comments was saying, quote, when we're talking about blocking of hate speech and things that quote, social networks are a network of private networks. And if you don't like the content, you can just block it. Well, that sounds to me like you've got some choices then, and you've, you've got the ability to take some user control uh, and the editorial discretion should continue to lie with you and with the private platforms. But getting back to your point about you still advocate a quote, mild and discriminant discrimination requirement. This comes up repeatedly in your paper, but I don't really know what that means. I don't know what mild really means in this context. You say in, all, uh, in different points of your paper, sorry, I'm getting a lot of feedback here, um, that a, quote, generalized anti-discrimination requirement presents real challenges, quote, and that, quote, defining non-discrimination is not simple. Later, you say social media is all about, at some level, discrimination. The platforms curate media that will interest you. But nonetheless, you say, quote, tests can be worked out and can be analyzed under a reasonable, reasonable justification standard. Well, what standard is that? What is this mild anti-discrimination standard? This sounds so simple. Well, is it something like we had during, like, again, the Fairness Doctrine days? Is it, is it something that we tried to apply briefly that some wanted to apply to, say, newspapers until in Miami Herald versus Tornillo, we, the Supreme Court struck down that sort of a, a thing and said editorial discretion should stand? Um, this is a really hard, hard question, especially as applied to speech platforms. This is not like traditional common carriage at all. Even there, it could be complicated, as Professor Chandler said, that in, in certain contexts with regards to traditional transportation services and other things, there are still questions there. Uh, and there are exceptions to when you can and cannot discriminate. But this, this idea that this is all sort of one big corporate, uh, you know, Section 230 is a corporate fiasco and corporatism, you know, you can repeated use of this. To the contrary, Section 230 reflects a, a, a commonsensical approach to liability that would say the benefit of the doubt should be on letting speech flow, flow freely and not basically imposing liability on intermediaries who are trying to traffic more speech and more, have a more vibrant uh, diversity of viewpoints on their platforms. That's a real public good, if you want to talk about public goods. And yes, there will be curation involved. Yes, there will be efforts to involve taking down certain types of content for the reasons that uh, Lori uh, mentioned. You know, some of that has to happen. And it users expect it. Users want to be able to curate some of their own experience, but they also expect some of that experience to be curated for them. And the community, as Professor Chanders uh, alluded to, needs to be such that you can expect to be able to go in and engage in speech 
and not have to deal with a certain amount of the other problems that uh, that are out there. So I think the mild anti-discrimination requirement is not so mild when you start talking about the reality of how it's imposed in a political context. And then you start to bring in the First Amendment considerations that I think uh, weighs against uh, doing such a thing. Um, so I think I'll leave it at that and then come back and offer some more comments later. So uh, a few responses as well, many of which are, are similar to Adam the second. Um, as, as long as they get to be Adam the first, that's fine. <laughs> um, so, you know, in my mind, I think it's important to reframe how we're talking about Section 230 and corporatism here, because I think there's been a little bit of muddling between our companies as individuals and that Facebook itself is a public good versus the idea that Section 230 was trying to encourage the proliferation and diversity of ideas across the Internet. Right. And I think it means very can mean very different things if you're talking about us being a public good versus making sure that there is a forum for a diversity of ideas across websites where you can find your individual corner where you can talk to your community. Facebook is one place for that, but there are other places that you can go. So I think we need to, to, to think about it a little bit in that regard. Um, I would also push back on the idea that um, government censorship isn't as bad as private censorship. As I said a, a second ago, you have myriad alternatives um, on the internet um, where you can express your ideas. And if um, you decide, if you can't express a particular idea on Facebook and you don't want to express it anywhere else on the internet, you can call your friend, you can put an ad in a newspaper. Um, there's all sorts of ways that um, are alternatives to us where you can get your voice out. But when government says you can't say something, you can't say that, right? And we see that playing out in, um, in a European context. We see that playing out in other countries around the world where we do have laws that we have to abide by about what can and can't be said on Facebook. And it does have the effect of limiting speech. We have to think very carefully about what our liabilities might be. And it does encourage you to take down in a, in a broader sense, right? Because we don't want to you know, be, um, be found in violation in any of those laws. And it's difficult to adjudicate those laws, right? Because at the end of the day, again, it goes back to what I the point I made in my opening remarks that context matters. And if you, you know, put a particular piece of content in front of, you know, five regulators or five members of the public, it can be hard to figure out exactly whether or not something is violating unless the laws are specific enough. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, a real struggle around the world. Um, I'll also push back on the um, on Adam the First's assertion that the procedures that we're putting in place aren't um, that they're not designed to protect an open forum. They're only designed for our bottom line. Um, I think that's a weird way to look at it, um, actually, because the end result of these processes will be that we have a fairer and more open forum. And it is, in fact, the market that is pushing us in that direction. It is that we hear from our users that we worry about whether or not we're adjudicating content correctly. And so to say that government is the necessary answer versus the fact that there might be corrective um, corrective mechanisms in the market already pushing us in the direction that we all seem to want to go on this panel seems like a little bit of a, a false assertion to me. Um, and then lastly, to, to touch on the last point that if you, um, if you don't want to talk to someone, you can block them. No one is not using social media because they fear hate speech. Um, it's, it's, it is true that if you don't want to talk to someone, you can block them. It is not true that there are people who, uh, that there's no one in the world who isn't using social media because they fear um, the type of speech that they might see on the platform. Um, I'll give you an example. If you look at 
um, after the 2016 election um, and early 2017, um, we for the first time saw our, our user engagement in the US go down. Um, we do a lot of user surveying and we found out that a lot of that was based on the heated nature of the election, that everything had become politicized. People felt like they were seeing too much news. They were seeing too much vitriol. We made very public changes to our algorithm to prioritize what we call meaningful social interactions, um, reduced news in your newsfeed, and um, started serving people a lot more of what they said they wanted, which was, you know, pictures and kind comments between family members and friends. Um, we've since seen our user engagement numbers go back up. We're constantly, you know, trying to adjust the the thousands of signals in the algorithm to help our, our users have the experience that they want. Um, but at a broad scale, we do see reflections in our user base of people being um, frustrated by the tenor of conversation on social media and reacting accordingly. Um, we do try to provide you with all of the tools that you need. You can decide people you want to see first, pages you want to see first. You can block people. You can snooze people. Um, we certainly do want to find good ways to cede more control to users. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that we do also know that people can't have experiences they don't like, and we have to figure out how, how to create a better product when that happens. Um, and then at an international level, which I think is a, um, a part of this conversation we haven't really touched on as much, um, we do see um, real world violence and death as a result of the types of speech that can at times go viral on Facebook. That is a responsibility we take incredibly seriously. It's why we have tried to, um, we're hiring um, people to, to moderate content and dozens of languages. We wanna make sure that we're catching threats um, as they arise because obviously the safety of our user base is incredibly important. Um, but I, I think it's important to keep in mind that there's sort of a, a broader context about the implications of content on social media, the virality risks that you run on the internet, um, and what that means our, our company's responsibility is as a result. Great. And I just want to add one last thing, and I hate to uh, Adam, uh, Professor Kandova has been very kind to have uh, to allow a panel where all the panelists are invited to criticize him. Uh, and so this is kind the of- The most attention I've gotten, I don't know how many years, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, so, um, so just one last thing, which is to pick up on uh, Laurie's point, which is uh, I always believe on the internet that you know, every government should function under kind of a golden rule or a categorical uh, imperative, which is act in a way that uh, other nations might use the same rule. Uh, and if, if that's the approach that we offer, uh, Professor Kandub's approach here uh, would be kind of, uh, would lead to the cascade of horribles of other countries um, sh shaping the social media in, uh, um, uh, space to prefer their voices or privilege uh, uh, voices that we might find uh, problematic. Thanks. All right. Thank you all. Um, we will go to audience questions in a moment, um, but I, I do. Would, I would like to take the moderator's prerogative here, just to go back to something that Professor Chander was talking about. There's a spectrum of regulatory options here, and here at the Gray Center, we're you know this is a tech event, and we also have a, an event next March 27th on regulating social media. We workshop a bunch of additional papers, including some on 2:30 last week, um, but. Uh, I'm more interested in kind of like the broader picture for regulation and administration generally. So there's a spectrum of, of, of options here. And it seems 
Um, so there's, on the one side, there's, you know, Weibo or Weixing or but China runs their own social media. And, you know, um, and then maybe a little bit further over, you can have, and I have corporatism written down here before you mentioned it, you can have a kind of soft law corporatism where you have uh, negotiation between public partners and the government, a public dialogue, maybe you put board members from, from think tanks and it all looks like it's above board and you're just kind of having an airing out of what elite opinion is on these things. You can go a little further, you can have adversarial regulation um, which is genuinely adversarial between the government and parties and they air out things and you pick a side and you have to comply. And then on the end, the last one is the one that seems none of you like, which is the common law, which is state regulation. And I just really haven't, I've heard a few things that Professor Chander alluded to, but if we, if we just, if we didn't have a common carriage obligation and we had a pure common law approach, I'm, I'm just not sure what the problem necessarily would be because it seems that Lori, you're bullish on Facebook being able to get it right, as you say, in the presence of 230. So why can't you get it right in the absence of 230 to fine tune for state defamation laws? Why can't you have arbitration systems uh, uh, or, or agreements where um, you know people will, if they have problems, it doesn't necessarily have to go straight into court? I guess I, I just don't see the parade of horribles. Um, in the absence of this kind of uh, preemption of state state tort law, um, so I, I will take up on that because um, I am common carriage is originally not a a regulatory um, body of law. It was created by common law courts. I mean, if I were king. Um, I'm a 19th century kind of guy, we would go back to doing that. I mean, I think that um, there's, I got some strange looks. Um, I, I think that you could put a, a basic, um, and I, I, I can see it as, as the commenters pointed out, I, it's not really fleshed out what I mean by a mild anti-discrimination requirement, but courts of the 19th century adjudicated um, claims of discrimination um, on coverage, and you know you can read it. Um, I, there's tons of them, um, and they and they came up with rules about what what was discrimination. Um, they it was you know complicated with railroads and what constituted the same kind of cart and things like that. But they came up with these rules, um, and I think that in the same way, they probably could could work very well with. Um, Issues of immune of, of defamation and 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 other online harm. Uh, the, the questions about like uh, alternate alternate histories of you know a world without two thirty are interesting. I I really don't know. I have sort of mixed feelings on it myself. I will point first and foremost to a, a, a really wonderful new paper that my colleague Jennifer Huddleston back there has co-authored with my colleague Brent Scora um, on how the courts are already moving in the direction of what two thirty accomplished uh, before it was imposed and. Um, I know that's something that Professor Kendu probably has some disagreements with, but generally speaking, there was a, a gradual movement in the direction of avoiding um, these types of distributor liability or, or intermediary liabilities uh, on speech platforms. Maybe that would have continued, but at the time we were, let's not forget, Section 230 was part of the Communications Decency Act, which was part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And for those of us who were there and present in the room and working closely uh, on the bill, um, I worked very closely with uh, with uh, uh, Wyden and Cox's staff on this, and there was there was a real effort to say like we need a fresh break and a clear uh, vision for the internet and digital speech and commerce, and we really did chart a new course. 
Now, we could have a really interesting academic debate here about, you know, when should Congress intervene to mess with the common law and liability standards? I deal with this a lot in the context of stuff like driverless cars and emerging technologies more generally. And, and I'm torn about it because generally speaking, I, I, Andrew, I am that guy. I'm like, leave it. Common law is our answer. Torts, you know, that, that, that's me usually until it isn't. <laughs> and, and, and maybe there's a little bit of selective morality here, but there's a, uh, there are many interesting case studies of where important emerging technologies or uh, and not just media platforms, communications, but all technologies um, are harmed and the public good is harmed because we have a very litigious uh, uh, system in the United States without a loser pays rule and with a lot of sort of redistributionism going on against deep pocketed uh, uh, corporations and others. Um, and that creates real disincentives um, to innovate. Um, my favorite book on this of all time, my, my great hero, uh, Aaron Wodolsky wrote about searching for safety is probably the, one of the best books ever written on these topics. And he has an important case, uh, uh, chapter on why tort law is not the answer as it pertains to this, um, and it creates a whole uh, secondary set of issues and, and, and complications. I, I want to say something else, though, about Section 230, which is that we're at the point now where removing it would have other uh, effects that we need to consider. I mean, we're just talking, you know, there's so much chatter about Google and Facebook and, and Twitter. and so There are so many other players in our modern digital ecosystem of importance, and they're important, not just because they exist today, but, but what they could become or the ones that we can't name and who, how they could come in and be new entrants that provide truly disruptive innovation. Removing Section 230's pr protections will hurt them far more than it will hurt Google, Facebook, Twitter, or anybody else. Eric Goldman has a, a short essay on, I just went up on, a, on SSRN recently about this, and it is really essential that we not undermine Section 230 at this point in time if you really want to make sure we can actually provide that more competitive marketplace of ideas and platforms that we all desire. Yeah, so I'll start with pointing out again that I am the non-lawyer on the panel, and so I am probably least equipped to answer this question incredibly well. So I will resort back to how we think about this in the in the Facebook context and try to provide a little color. Um, you know, I think what's difficult about um, thinking about this going through through common law um, is again when we when there's an order that we have to take a particular thing down um, I think that opens a lot of questions right um, what we see what we already struggle with and have difficulty with is if we're ordered to take down a particular piece of content thinking about this and maybe in a, a non-us context right um, do you take down every version of that? Do you take down the exact wording every place that it appears? Do you take down, if you take out this word and you substitute that word instead, does it fundamentally change the meaning or do we need to take down that as well, right? And so you see this particularly in cases when things go viral, that people will publish you know, slightly different versions of the same thing or they'll publish an image form of the same thing where we can't read the text with a machine. And so it gets incredibly complicated when you're talking about a, a proliferation of content. Isn't that a problem, though, that you have with or without a court order? Isn't that a problem that you have with any content decision that you make? It, right. That, that's the point I'm trying to it, it is a problem with any content decision we have to make, and we have to figure out how and where to draw the line. And so when you introduce a legal liability to the point of this panel, it encourages you to take down very prolifically, right? Because you don't want to be found at risk of leaving up something that you were supposed to take down. Um, 
and then we, you know, similarly had a different problem um, or a similar problem in, in Europe with the, the recent law that now you don't just have to take down something inside the borders of the country that told you to take it down. We need to remove it everywhere. We do a lot of geo-blocking, right, where a particular piece of content is said you can't be, um, it can't be in France, it can't be in Germany. Um, and so I think we would have to also sort of consider questions about whether that means this can't be in the state of Alabama or this can't be in the United States or this can't be in the world and like what the implications of that are. Going to Andrew's question of whether or not the common law might be a good substitute for 230, um, I do agree that I think the big platforms would survive, but the settlement values of the suits against them would rise, right? Uh, the the 230 provides certainty in these contexts. Um, it's been used by every one of these companies. Um, you saw this uh, Salesforce CEO complain about 230, what, uh, probably without knowing that his lawyers are using 230 to protect themselves against claims uh, all the time. Uh, and so um, 230 is used by the Washington Post. It's used by, so it's not just for Facebook. It's for every internet enterprise because almost every internet enterprise uh, of note starts hosting other people's stuff, uh, starts offering space for people to write comments, starts allowing people to share information. And by doing that, you open yourself up to claims of liability because when you allow people to do things, someone always does something bad or allegedly bad. Uh, and so everything that allows you to, all technologies that allow you to share information, uh, which is what the internet fundamentally is, um, allows people to share information that other people feel is wrongful. Uh, and the specter of liability in that context means that the communications medium will then either act prolifically to remove anything that is notified to it as allegedly wrongful without any adjudication of the truth or falsity of, of the wrongfulness of it. Because uh, yes, uh, 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 Hassel v. Bird, the California Supreme Court case, there was actually a judicial ruling in that case that Yelp, uh, there was a defamation in that case. Um, but that's the rare case where there is actually an adjudication that you can bring to a platform to say, hey, take this down. Um, those are extremely rare cases. Instead, what you will have is lots and lots of notices. This is false information. This is uh, a defamatory. This violates my privacy. This violates various uh, federal or state statutes in some way uh, and and expose liability in that context. I'll make sure we uh, we do have some time for some questions, so if there are any in the audience, um, right up front right here, please. Good morning. My question is, I, I heard a lot of avoiding uh, hate speech things that we don't like to see in our feed line. But how to also balance this with seeing only what we want and to reinforce our bias? Because if I'm also reinforcing just my bias, I become a hate speech too. Because I only see one side, I only see one position, and I'm unable to balance both concepts. So how to balance these two things? Because I understand when you put something that is wrong to be a purge, but when I 
putting just half lies in a way that build up in a big lie to who just reinforce my bias. And just to put a point on it, um, is there a right answer for some of these things? I'm not even, is there a right answer for, for content decisions just in the abstract as well? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start. Um, that's a great question and it is the question that we struggle with every day. Um, I, I will point out um, there are actually some studies um, that, that I think are pretty compelling that show that um, social media, despite all of the sort of allegations that it increases partisanship, that it lets you create your own sort of ecosystem where um, you're only hearing ideas that reinforce your views, that by and large, um, social media is, um, can actually have an ameliorating effect on that. Um, you know, and I think to some extent it makes sense. Even me, who lives here in Washington, D.C., and spent 10 years in um, sort of very um, um, conservative think tank circles, I still have tons of Facebook friends that are across the aisle. I still see their content. It exposes me to new ideas. And could I make the decision to turn them off or unfriend them? Yes, right? But that's not actually how we see behavior um, carry out on the platform. Um, and in fact, if you look at the people who are most polarized and most partisan, it's the people who spend the least amount of time online. Um, and so I think it's important to, like, A, when we think about it, keep, keep in perspective that the sort of overarching narrative about social media and polarization isn't necessarily true to the extent that it's it's played out, but it doesn't um, it doesn't change the the fact that you raise an important question um, where we have to think about you know as as we write the the community standards um, sort of the part of it that we can control we can't control who your friends are or what pages you choose to follow you know how do we write them in a way that makes sure that we simply adjudicate individual posts um, fairly and consistently and right and so. When we think about hate speech, um, the way we have written our rules is we've defined what we think of as um, protected characteristics. They're very similar to federal anti-discrimination laws. Um, they do go a little bit further in the um, categories that we, we will protect, um, but it's religion, it's race, um, it's gender, it's sexual orientation, things like that. Um, and you can't make particular statements about a person based on that. Um, and, you know, we, we, again, have the rules public so you know what you can and can't say. Um, we want to encourage dialogue, so we want you to be able to discuss a concept, right? So you could say um, that Christianity is, um, has been bad for the world, or you could say that homosexuality has been bad for the world, but you could not say that, you know, homosexuals are the worst thing ever, right? Or that Christians are killers or things like that, right? Um, because we have found when we watch um, what what we think as the like the downstream implications of speech on social media, um, attacking people and dehumanizing people can have um, negative consequences far quicker than the ability to attack an idea. Um, I know that not everyone agrees with that definition. We're always constantly refining, um, but that is how, how we approach it, at least in the sense of trying to create balance and fairness that you wouldn't, what you wouldn't be able to say against women, you also wouldn't be able to say against men. What you can't say against black people, you also can't say against white people. Um, that doesn't maybe get it right in every case, but that's, that's how we think about it. Uh, I'll, I'll just briefly, um... I take a different take uh, take on the social science. Um, 
social media has had a pernicious effect, pernicious effect on the democracy. Cass Sunstein talks about this in um, what is Democracy 2.0. Um, we're, we're, are creating bubbles. I mean, why is that? Because we feel comfortable in our bubbles and it's easy to get our attention to sell to advertisers. I mean, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if, if social media is a public forum, then we need mild anti-discrimination requirements so that certain groups aren't just shut off completely and that people feel that they can participate. Because you're right, I mean, you know, it's what, what Christ told to his disciples, you are, the, you are the salt of the earth. We need the abrasion, the irritation, the annoyance in order to make democracy work. All right, well, I, we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists.